It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to Bullshift the Podcast, where we talk about how optimism biased has an impact on your investment decisions and how the financial services industry shifts your attention to being more bullish. My name is John DeGuy. I'm the author of the book, Bullshift, seen here, and I'm the host of the podcast. Welcome. My guest this week is Jeff Lang. Jeff is the Senior VP of Ecaton, and he is a committed investment professional with over a decade of experience and leading, uh, leading leadership within the industry. He's had a lot of exposure to private equity in its various forms and has a unique perspective on the asset class of real estate and the benefits it offers. Jeff develops and implements strategies for Ecotons Investment Solutions, and he focuses primarily on the financial advisor community. His top priority is to ensure high levels of client satisfaction for both advisors and investors. Jeff Lang, welcome. Thanks so much, John. Uh, appreciate you having me. Um, you know, I read your fir- first book, Stand Up, and uh, obviously it was a great read. So looking forward to reading this book and uh, I recommend it to anyone who's listening to this podcast today. So appreciate you having me on and looking forward to the discussion. Perfect. Let's begin. I always like to have, have my first question to be a general. Tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do at Ecotons. Yeah, so on a personal level, married, two young kids. I have a two and a half year old and a four month old. So my house is busy. Um, work sometimes feels like a vacation now, uh, driving into the downtown office here. Um, big golfer, playing a lot of golf tournaments. My golf game gets worse and worse every year, as expected, but uh, still a lot of fun to get out. Uh, on a professional level, um, as you mentioned, I'm the senior VP of Equiton. Um, we are a private equity real estate company focusing on the Canadian uh, multi-res apartment building space. Um, we run three different funds, but our flagship fund is the Equiton Apartment Fund, uh, inception of 2015. So I'm out on the road speaking with advisors, doing conferences, everything under the hood to get the word out there about the Equiton Apartment Fund and how we can have value to client portfolios, all, plain and simple. All right, so uh, if there's one thing that people are optimistic about these days, and in fact, when I say these days, I'm gonna say over the past decade, especially here in the greater Toronto area, it's real estate. But there's real estate comes in different shapes and fam- sizes. It's uh, multifamily, it's, it's private residential, it's commercial, uh, it's industrial, and, and there's lending uh, aspects to it and whatnot. Maybe, it would be helpful if you could walk people through the various shades and uh, differences with regard to different real estate segments. Yeah, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head with that pretty well. Um, Not all real estate's created equally. We all know that, right? And I think a lot of the investors out there have biases towards single family homes. And that's sort of the benchmark for real estate. You know, single family home prices are going down. That's, I'm sure every piece of real estate's going down. But I'll take it two two ways. Um, First and foremost, we all know from a single family home perspective that affordability is based on payment and not price. A $2 million house in Toronto can now be worth 1.7, but your mortgage rate is twice as much as what it was a few years back, right? So your payments are actually higher 
thus making the property more expensive. And as we saw, you know, back from March 2022 to December 2022, single family home prices dropped about 19%. We at Equiton invest in private Canadian apartments. In that same time frame, private Canadian apartments were up 3.4%. So I think, you know, end investors, the optimism bias that you touch upon is that not all real estate's created equal. There's commercial, which had a bit of its struggle since COVID and vacancy rates, obviously, as we know. Um, I come to the office every day, be a bit of an oxymoron being in real estate if I didn't go to the office every day. But trying to understand those different biases and trying to explain to the end investor that we're private Canadian apartments, a lot of immigration population growing here in Canada. We stick to Canada only. We don't want to touch U.S. taxation, the fluctuations in the rental market. And, you know, Canadian apartments for the last 40 years since inception of the, the benchmark has continuously increased and we like the way we're positioned now. Let's talk about uh, the optimism uh, that Canadians have for real estate uh, in general. And, and maybe we can talk about real estate in, in the, the, the really hot markets, which is really Greater Vancouver and Greater Toronto. Those are the two that have always been consistently the hottest. But I wanted to talk about it in the context of something you touched on a moment ago, which is the cost of carry. So uh, irrespective of what happens to the price of a property, and it could be a rental property. It could it could be a it could be an apartment. It doesn't have to be a, a fully detached home. But people are watching what happens with uh, interest rates. And so we had you know the, the the Bank of Canada held rates steady in the beginning of September. And I think there are a lot of people that are people who have mortgages who collectively breathe a sigh of relief because there was some thought that there was still a chance there might be a rate hike. And in fact, there may yet be more rate hikes down the road. But I'm wondering if you could offer your thoughts about the optimism people have toward investing in real estate in particular, both as an investment and as a lifestyle asset. Yeah, to your point on interest rates, it's tough to predict where they're going to go. Obviously, GDP came down at negative 0.2%, but then today came out that jobs growth was explosive. So where do we go? What do we situ where do we situate ourselves? I agree. I'm sure when the rates were you know, nothing moved. A lot of people breathe that sigh of relief who are doing the re-rating coming up shortly or the next year or so. Um, but it, there's always been this sort of optimism that real estate can't go down or, you know, we should be investing in real estate. And there's two, there's a bunch of sides of the, two sides of the coin from the standpoint of, you know what, rentings become more and more common, right? Cost of carrying a home is rather expensive. Um, we all know that, but I, I think there's more and more lean toward, you know, renting is more commonplace. I look, you know, back 30 years, it used to be graduate from university, buy a house, start a family, off you go. Um, a lot of this change has changed in the millennial direction. A lot of, you know, my friend group rents and it's very commonplace, but I think where we come in at Equiton is people still want a piece of that real estate pie. And right, and so even if you can't afford a house or renting seems to make the most sense right now, you can invest in a fund where you're getting a piece of that action where you're a part owner of, you know, in our situation, 34 apartment buildings and getting yield rental income coming in, right? We offer a yield of 7% um, on the portfolio, which I think right now is pretty attractive when you're trying to beat a GIC or a money market fund yielding five. So it's, there is that optimism bias in that real estate space, 
but I think that there's more of a consensus that there's different ways to own it, and that's why you know we cater to that. Okay, so if we're going to talk about different ways to own it, there's there's actually there are some pros and some cons, and I want to talk about one of the cons, which is if you buy a, 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 an access to a diversified product, which offers you know d three dozen different uh, apartments in, in in a single single purchase. Uh, a lot of what the product manufacturers, such as your firm, and there are other firms in this space, will have is they will do some gating, which is to say, you can sell it, it's not like it's illiquid, but you can't sell it at a T plus two the way you can sell a stock or a bond or, or an exchange traded fund. You have to wait because you have to match the money coming in and the money coming out and loans coming due and properties being sold. What are your thoughts with regard to maybe getting what might be called a liquidity premium? and people thinking about investing in real estate with a bit of a time lag between when they when they can get out if they want to get out yeah uh, and liquidity premium is a thing for sure um we target eight to twelve percent net of fees and to your point about gating i think we have to take it a step back and look at you know the breadth of investors in an alternative fund and that's just not talking about equiton that's looking at alternatives in general um, at Equiton, we offer monthly liquidity with 30 days notice. So we do offer that. But from a gating perspective and looking at liquidity, it's important to look at the breadth of the investors, who the investors are, what's the large, who the largest investor is. These are all very significant, which could lead to a company gating redemptions in the future. So I like if I were an investor, and I, I know there's been a lot of themes, you know, Going back 10 years, what you started at the start of the podcast, you know, big tech, cannabis, crypto, AI, right? Like all these themes, but it's important as an investor to really understand the fund that you're looking at and investing in. And what I mean by that is at Equiton, we run a billion dollar or close to a billion AUM, and we have just shy of 10,000 investors. That's quite very good breadth. I'd be very concerned if we had 10 institutional investors that could redeem at any point in time, right? So that's very important to ask. How many investors are there? What's the breadth? Who's the largest holder? Our largest holder is our management team at about 5% of the fund, right? That's important. Skin in the game. We don't have someone who owns 25% of the mandate that if they do redeem, we have to gate, right? So we offer that monthly liquidity. We have good breadth of investors and we have our management team as our largest uh, individual unit holder. Just so that I'm clear, I'm, I'm trying to ask the questions more generically as opposed to any given product. Yeah. So I, I'm trying to just sort of, so the people listening, instead of comparing and contrasting one product versus another, I want them to think about the strategy, the asset class, the, the, the sort of high level macro sort of perspective on things, just so that, so that you understand where I'm, where I'm trying to get, trying to, trying to tease out your detail. Um, yeah. Investing in an inflationary environment. We're in a situation now where inflation has been higher than it has been in over 20 years uh, and it was at its highest you know, about a year or so ago and we're at the point now where interest rates are at their highest in over 20 years and and by extension mortgage rates are at their highest yeah. in over 20 years and a lot of people have made a lot of money over the past 20 years because we've been in what is a secular bull market for anything that is interest rate sensitive, which is to say interest rates were very, very high in the early 80s. And for the next 40 years, there was a slow but steady, persistent downward trend in rates. 
and now it seems as though we've hit the bottom in rates, and for the past year and a quarter, year and a half, rates have shot up, and they don't look as if they're going to be coming down to where they were in the past anytime soon, and maybe not, maybe not even ever again in our lifetimes. So what do you think people should be thinking about if they're long-term investors and they're trying to guard against being overly optimistic, given that we've got some inflationary pressure that most people have not experienced in the past generation? Oh, it's difficult. I, I'd recommend don't buy strawberries from the grocery store. Like those are, oh, go to the, it's, it, it hurts, right? Like these inflationary, like everything's so expensive these days. Like I empathize with everyone, you know, out there trying to A, find property, buy, like it, it's a difficult time right now. And uh, I feel like a lot of people are feeling those pre the pressure of inflation. And I think it's important to understand, you know, the risks that are involved in rising rates what companies do well what companies don't where can you put capital to work where should you avoid it's it's a difficult time um we all feel it um obviously our expertise is in the real estates and you know the rental market as inflation continues to increase more and more people rent that you know the rentals continue to rise um definitely here in ontario vancouver and across the country as a whole but it's it's important to look at and i think that's crucial when you're looking at value of advice having a good financial advisor to guide you through these times because this is the most difficult i've seen in my lifetime um you know gic's aren't paying north double digits it, it's difficult and i think you need someone to speak to with regards to this get a good financial plan understand the biases in the marketplace, what did well 10 years ago might not do well today. And I think it's very imperative. It's interesting because in a, when, when we're in an inflationary environment, it, things like real estate tend to do fairly well in a macro uh, inflationary environment, whereas things like stocks and bonds do relatively less well. So what is interesting is that uh, every day is a new day. Just because that's what happened in the past doesn't necessarily mean that's what the future will look like. But it strikes me as being probable that real estate, relative to standard traditional financial assets, stocks and bonds, might be better positioned in this environment than it has been in, in some time. So I think that's actually a, a good plug for alternatives in general and perhaps even real estate in particular. And that's, that's the sort of thing that a lot of people haven't really thought about because, you know, they're... they're Valuations, let, let me put it to you this way. There are a lot of risks yeah. in, in uh, as, we, as we speak here in September of 2023, there are a lot of risks in terms of not only inflation, but also possibly stagflation because GDP has stagnated. Uh, we've got high, high valuations for stocks that, that are trading at a very high multiple of earnings. And, and we've got a situation right now where there could be a credit bubble because a lot of people and a lot of governments are really stretched in terms of you know what they're what they're spending and, and how much room they have left in terms of their cost of carry with rates being higher. So there are a lot of risks that are unique to the environment in in the second half of 2023 that a lot of people haven't really experienced and haven't really thought about. And when I talk about optimism bias, a lot of people are optimistic because they think the future will look like the recent past. And if the recent past hasn't been that bad, they think the future looks bright. But that's recency bias, and that's anchoring, and, and that's a whole bunch of representativeness. There's a whole bunch of different other biases that you're 
subjecting yourself to if you just take the, the lazy approach of, oh, we'll be fine because we were always fine before. I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, it, it's, that was a great explanation as to that optimism bias is I've done, I've made so much more money over the, and I'm talking generally speaking, uh, like I've made so much money over the last 10 years, this will continue to, to go, but rates were cutting, Every, valuations were inflated, right? All companies across the board. Now you're taking a step back, looking at your portfolio and you really have to look out for the next 10 years where's money going to be made it's it's difficult to say like as you mentioned stocks and bonds difficult obviously rising rate environment bonds work inversely on that maybe you're looking at a little bit of more short-term debt to help with the duration risk um but it's it's a difficult environment to be in um we play in the playground where it's there's some tailwinds helping us obviously clients investor policy statements it depending how many how much you can use in all in the alternative space. And as I said, I always recommend using a financial advisor to work through that, what you can allocate to stocks, fixed income alternatives. But I think we all have to take a step back and realize, you know what, there was a, there was a good bull market there for a long period of time. What can we do to maybe de-risk the portfolio? Maybe take some easy money out there and money markets paying pretty well. GICs are playing pretty well. Real estate's doing well. Um, but as I said, it's a massive transitory shift that's going on right now. And as I talk to, you know, other professional experts, peer groups, friend groups is this is a lot different environment macroeconomically than what it was in the past. And we have to prepare, prepare portfolios for that. You have to be ready for everything. And I think a lot of people are ready for what they've experienced. But if they haven't experienced some of the things that we're experiencing now, by definition, they can't really be ready for it because they've never experienced no, it. They don't know. It's so tough, John. And you know what? I, I like how you use the term, you know, optimistic bias. Like it's, we, there's so much noise in the marketplace and in the media, right? And it's just, I feel like every six months, there's a new investment theme. There's 70 new investment products that are coming out that are trying to capitalize new ETFs. And as I said earlier, it was, you know, we're the first cannabis ETF. We're the first crypto ETF. We're the first AI ETF. And we're double leverage. We're triple leverage. We're inverse. Like it's, it's so difficult for um, individuals who, it's difficult for us who we're immersed in the space every single day. I couldn't only imagine if you weren't, right? There's, so much noise. It's very difficult. I, I empathize with everyone trying to manage their expectations from portfolio construct and everything in between. Um, but it's, I, and I preach the value of advice to seek assistance out there. Um, but don't get lost in the, the noise of the media. I think the term keep it simple is um, important and prudent in this environment. It brings me to the question of governance. Um, one of the things that um, a lot of firms that are smaller uh, that have to manage in an environment where people are trusting you with their money, uh, one of the ways they can provide comfort is to ensure investors that there's a strong culture of corporate governance at the firm to manage risks, to, to, to do the due diligence on the front end, 
so that they don't have to worry. I wonder if you could perhaps take a few moments just to walk through, not necessarily at your firm, but just the, the importance of having a corporate governance mindset and, and, and mentality and culture uh, for firms that offer products such as yours. Yeah, I, I think it's imperative. Absolutely. Like you have to look at a company and say, do they have a majority independent board? First and foremost, right? Um, you want companies like when we're speaking about private companies, you want private companies to act like a public. You want them to be transparent, right? You want them to have audited financial statements that are readily available. Probably on their website that you can go to, right? Majority independent board. How are they doing their um, pricing, like their net asset value if they're a mutual fund having a NAV or a unit price? Is that done internally or is that done um, from a third party independent factor, right? So all these things are very critical when looking at different strategies. As I said, there's hundreds and hundreds of funds out there, but you want corporate governance, majority independent board. Can I see their financials? Can I get under the hood? Can I ask the tough questions and get back simplistic, non-complicated answers from the manufacturer? These are all critical when looking at different investment decisions out there. Yeah, and it's funny because I've had other people on the podcast as well, and we've talked about the important role of alternatives. And in this case, I'm going to talk about real estate as being an alternative asset. And to me, anything which is not stocks or bonds uh, would qualify as an alternative. And alternatives are inherently better, very good diversifiers because they're oftentimes weakly and sometimes negatively correlated to the traditional financial assets. But they do require... Uh, 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 perhaps a, a standard of care, a level of due diligence, given the fact that they tend to be, you know, smaller shops and, and harder to harder to get the broad diversification. So you have to do your homework. You should probably look at using uh, alternative products, but you have to be careful before you use them because you need to make sure that the people are doing things on the up and up. So that I think that's an important way of, of looking at it. Yeah, absolutely, and. A lot of different alternatives out there. We real estate gets lumped in as an alternative, but I think majority of the listeners on this would understand real estate or know it quite well. Um, I we try and pride ourselves on being, you know, on the lower end of that risk spectrum, being in the real estate, but it is an alternative. But, but also in terms of complexity and and just just inherent understanding. If you start talking to people about hedge funds or long short strategies or you know, arbitrage strategies or, or, or trading currencies or whatever else, people very quickly have their eyes glaze over. And that's not necessarily to disparage products or strategies that do those sorts of things. But in terms of it being intuitive, in terms of it being the sort of thing that anyone on the street will understand, people understand real estate more or less. Um, right. And, and the, the concern that I have uh, is that people are optimistic about things, uh, especially in 2023, just because they've been good. And things are people are particularly optimistic about real estate, and that's the concern that I have, you know, that I talk about a little bit in, in Bullshift. And not really about real estate, but about optimism and about how people have to be careful about being too giddy about things going a bit too well. Absolutely. And I think we've all been guilty guilty of it in the past, right? Like I I I'd be lying to you if I said I, I didn't dip my toe into some of these themes in the past, right? And some of them worked out well, some of them did not, right? And it's it's tough to take the emotion out of investing. It's very difficult. Um, and, you know, I think the industry is doing a better job of it, uh, making sure these products that come to market 
have all these things that these we've things discussed and we talked about. Talk. But I think it's very important that end investors look under the hood, look at the financials, look at how the company's made up before making an investment decision and going all in because the optimism bias can lead to some of those concerns. Fair enough. Okay, so let's let's wrap this up here. I always like to finish off the uh, the podcast with uh, two segments. Uh, the first is that's bullshit. If there was any one thing that Jeff Lang could change with regard to the way the financial industry works in these days, what would it be? Ah, uh, you know, I like to think I'm still young, so I'm gonna. But I, as <laughs> you know, the hairline's getting worse and worse every year. But um, the one thing I. I'd love to change is just the lack of education around personal finance in the school system. Um, it's just, we don't prepare the next generation to be successful. Like debt levels are so high. You can get, you walk into a bank, get a credit card, off you go. Like it's, it, we don't prepare the next generation from a financial standpoint. I think we're doing a better job if you're using an advisor where they can bring in their children to help educate. I think that's impactful. And I'm very passionate about that. I think every advisor, if you're running money for a family, you should include you know, the next generation because there is that massive transformation of wealth. But I just think the lack of education around taxation, mortgages, everyone was buying a house five years ago, right? Did everyone think rates were gonna stay around 2% on your house? It's just, and now there's probably going to be a lot of for sale signs coming up in the next two to three years when, you know, the mortgage rates have doubled and everyone's a little bit squeezed. So I'd like our, you know, our schooling education system starting from a younger age um, to have personal finance lessons, you know, education with regards to taxation, debt levels, mortgage rates, just cost of goods, how they can fluctuate. Um, and I think that would better prepare us for the future and, you know, okay. A little good. less credit card debt. Okay, good. So let's see if we can be specific here. So the second thing that I like to, to ask people about is shift happens. If it was up to you and you could actually do something to improve financial literacy at a younger age in the school system, how precisely would you do it? What, what, what would it look like? What, what would the exact courses be like? When would you use them? Uh, education is a provincial jurisdiction. So how would you get the provinces to sign on? What, you, what would it look like? Yeah, I, I I think from a government perspective, we know we're in some trouble here in Canada. Um, and I think into the schooling system, they're doing a little bit of a better job, but I think it could start a lot earlier. I went to Wilfrid Laurier University. They had a personal finance course there. Loved it. Helped prepared me for, you know, that next level when you graduate, when you have nothing to your name and, you know, maybe stash away some of your income into savings. I think that was imperative and really helped, really helped me out and my family. And I think it should start elementary, middle school, grade six, grade seven, but I think it also starts at home as well with the, with your children. But I think it's tough to get curriculum across. I understand that. I think we got to do a better start at the university level at the very least. Well, that the, the funny thing is, uh, there's a lot of people that don't go to university. It's sort of like sex education. Um, you, a lot of people say, well, it's best left at home, but the problem is a lot of parents don't feel comfortable talking to their kids about personal finance because there are a lot of things that the parents don't know. And so it becomes incumbent upon the education system to fill the gap because uh, one thing that we've learned is that uh, it's really widely dispersed in terms of the level of financial literacy you get 
depending on who mommy and daddy are, because some parents are very good and, and they, they have a good financial literacy. I grew up, my, my parents are wonderful, wonderful people, but they're immigrant farmers. They, didn't, they, they weren't in a position to impart any kind of financial literacy on, on, you know, to me. I had to do that on my own, and that's fine. But the problem is probably you should be doing that. I, I actually think it probably would make sense to do it in grade school. So, yeah, at least yeah, something, well, I, something basic I, I, at grade school. Earlier the better, for sure. Earlier the better. All right, Jeff, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me. Uh, for the people watching at home listening, please like and subscribe. We really appreciate your support. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a wonderful, wonderful chat, and all the best to you in the future. Yeah, thanks so much, John. really appreciate you having me on, and it was great to see you again. Thank you. John DeGuey is a portfolio manager in Toronto and the author of the book Bullshift, How Optimism Bias Threatens Your Finances. Bullshift is available online and in bookstores everywhere. The opinions expressed in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Bullshift, the podcast, is produced by TalkShoe, a division of IOTUM. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.